Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Okay, so so we're in the kind of the first week of this kind of new uh, three episodes a week. So I hope folks are are enjoying it. They've enjoyed uh, the previous episode, and uh, hope they check out this one. Uh, the the guest today is Robert Pippin. Uh, Robert is the Evelyn Stephenson Distinguished Service Professor in the Committee on Social Thought, the Department of Philosophy, and the College at the University of Chicago. He has been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, He's also been the Mellon Distinguished Achievement Award in Humanities. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's a member of the American Philosophical Society. He's a member of the German National Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, he is the author of many books um, and articles on uh, German idealism and later German philosophy, including the most recent book, The Culmination, Heidegger, German Idealism, and the Fate of Philosophy. And of course, that's what we, we talk about. And that's what we focus on. It will be no surprise that uh, this is another conversation I am doing on Martin Heidegger. Uh, people have listened to the podcast at this point or even just bounced around a few episodes know that I'm quite fond of the philosophy of, of, of uh, Heidegger. Um, and this conversation was really good in terms of connecting the dots with things, much like Robert's book does. Um, there's a, a sort of um, big following within philosophy um, uh, of German ideal, uh, idealism. People really are into Immanuel Kant and, um, and Hegel and even Schelling and Fichte. And um, this is kind of the four main uh, figures for German idealism. There's others as well. But, and, you know, Heidegger um, really thought about, you know, all of kind of Western philosophy from the Socratics up to, you know, close to his current day, kind of culminating with Hegel. And so he saw himself, he believed he saw Nietzsche as kind of a bridge, but, you know, he really saw himself as, kind of post-culmination. And this is why he has his emphasis on, on being and ontology in general. So we, we talk about this in the conversation. Um, we start by discussing Heidegger's ideas on the culmination of Western philosophy with Hegel, his emphasis on being. Uh, something that Robert talks about in the book, which I thought was very fascinating, was the meaningfulness of being. And we talk about Heidegger's ideas of present at hand and ready to hand. Talk about the impact of Husserl on Heidegger and their different ideas concerning uh, worldhood. We talk about Heidegger's ideas of standing presence, unveiling and concealment, imagination and intuition, especially juxtaposed with uh, Kant's ideas. Um, Looking at the comparison of Heidegger's Dasein with Hegel's Geist or spirit. And we also mentioned Schelling's ideas on nature, Hegel's conceptual ideas. Um, Heidegger being a kind of the first post-Hegelian European philosopher, poetic thinking, what we do with art, and uh, many other topics. Um, I've, I'm not a big person in uh, you know, reading and studying German idealism. However, I've, I've realized at this point I've, I've done have quite a handful of conversations on it. So um, this was, again, just such a treat for me. I really enjoy this conversation. I love much of our emphasis on Heidegger, but it's nice to put Heidegger 
within his context of other German philosophers uh, in, in, within German idealism and looking at the interactions and looking at how they kind of sort of converse with each other. I thought it was, it just kind of brought everything together for me in a lot of ways. And, and when I listened back to the conversation, I really, um, really, really liked how someone could listen to this and say, okay, I see how these things kind of connect. This person's building off this person, which is building off this person. And I think there's a, a few bits in here where Robert explains so well um, what makes Heidegger so tremendous in terms of his philosophy, why he's such a big deal. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's great to, to kind of hear it spelled out. And he's, he's fantastic at explaining, um, you know, philosophy in general and definitely with, within uh, German idealism and, and, and Heidegger's philosophy. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at Convergent Dialogues at Substack.com, also on YouTube. So subscribe, follow, uh, share widely. Feel free to contribute if you like. Um, that always helps. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, folks are continuing to enjoy these conversations. And so contributing by uh, you know, following or sharing is always very helpful on, on your end as a listener. So I appreciate that. And uh, now I bring you Robert Pippin. I am here with Robert Pippin. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, speaking with you. My pleasure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've uh, you've written many things, and uh, you've got the latest one out. Uh, it's called "The Culmination: Heidegger, German Idealism, and the Fate of Philosophy," and uh, it's quite good. I really, really enjoyed reading this one. Thank you. Uh, before we get all into it. Uh, could you just tell uh, listeners just uh, kind of a snapshot of who you are professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to? Well, I'm in two departments at the University of Chicago, the Department of Philosophy and an interdisciplinary department where my main appointment is the Committee on Social Thought, which is a, a PhD grant and graduate program with no fixed uh, program except for um, attention to uh, important books in the in the Western and Eastern philosophical, literary, religious, and historical tradition. Hmm. Um, I, uh, I started teaching 50 years ago wow. at, uh, at the now infamous New College in Sarasota, Florida, hmm. which has become something quite different than it was the year I was there. Hmm. And I taught from 1975 to 1992 at the University of California at San Diego hmm. at a great department that included Heidegger scholars like Fred Olson, Kant scholars like uh, Henry Allison, and Hegel scholars like Herbert Marcuse for a few years. Wow, wow, wow. Um, and then in 1992, I received an offer from the University of Chicago. And so I've been teaching here for 32 years. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, and uh, publishing uh, largely on modern German philosophy, Kant, Fichte, Hegel, Nietzsche, and Heidegger. And uh, uh, because of the committee's unusual structure and the kind of permission it gives faculty, I've also published quite a few books on, on literature, film, and the history of art, all nice. of which I, I try to... To show how important philosophical roles play yeah. in uh, philosophy beyond what have been appreciated by um, professional philosophers in the uh, Anglophone tradition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's great. That's great. I mean, I think we we need more of that kind of stuff. So, uh, the culmination, I guess. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's this is this isn't your first uh, first book, uh, and it's not your first book on German idealism or anything with Kant or Hegel. So, <laughs> this is familiar yeah. territory. 
Um, I guess I'm kind of put two questions here. Why did you want to write this book in the way in which you did? So basically Heidegger's interaction with uh, Kant and Hegel and, and, and Fichte and Schelling make their appearances too. But also, you know, how, how do you see Heidegger's role at this stage of what he was trying to understand with, you know, Western philosophy, metaphysics from Plato all the way to Hegel as kind of culminating there. So what was your kind of reason for writing this? And then dovetail us into why Heidegger thought about uh, Hegel and Western mm -hmm. philosophy. Yeah, well, um, a couple of things. Uh, about five or six years ago, I finished a book on what is Hegel's most opaque book, is basically his theory of concepts, which he called uh, The Science of Logic, mm -hmm. published when he was teaching high school students in Nuremberg from 1812 to 1814. Extremely uh, dense book about... Uh, conceptual interanimations, the way in which our fundamental a priori categories mm -hmm. um, were understanding. The thing that really impressed me was that uh, Hegel didn't think that in writing a book that he called The Science of Pure Thinking, he was writing a book about human thought. He thought he was writing a book that it was, at the same time, a science of pure thinking and what he would call science of being, mm -hmm. um, that he was bringing to a kind of culmination in his own mind the founding principle of all Western rationalism, which is that to be is to be intelligible in the sense of ultimately knowable, mm. that the, the specifications of how thought could be onto anything and be possibly true or false were also the specifications of being's determinacy, how anything could be differentiated from anything else, since the differentia of beings are usually predicates. And that meant that, as the great Greek scholar Aria Kozman first put it, um, predication is the science of being. Mm. And I had that interpretation of Hegel for about 30 years after I published a book called Hegel's Idealism, mm. uh, trying to argue that the extension of the Kantian program, um, the, the attempt to specify the a priori conditions of thought, were interpreted by Hegel to be also a metaphysics, uh, a determination of what could be a being, that is, what could be a being that was determinate, and determinacy is the mark of being. So once I, I, I finished the book, I, I started, I remembered that one of the only Hegel interpreters who had that interpretation of Hegel uh, was Heidegger. Mm. So I went back and started to read some of Heidegger's later stuff, a book he called Identity and Difference, which has a, a, a long essay on the science of logic. And then I got much more interested in Heidegger and started reading his lectures in Marburg and Freiburg in the mm -hmm. uh, 1920s and early 1930s, but mostly the 1920s. And it is, of course, his classic 1927 book being in being in time. And um, Heidegger said two things there that were interesting. First of all, it confirmed my view that Heidegger thought um, Hegel had engaged with the fundamental assumption of all Western rationalism, which is the knowability of being, the in principle knowability of being. Now, of course, there are traditions that are quite consistent that even though being is in principle knowable, we don't know very much about it. And the religious tradition is a primary example about that. Mm -hmm. But even in the, in the religious tradition, in people like Thomas Aquinas, um, the, the basic knowability of what there could be done by the only way we could do it, a priori studying what could be thought to be, um, was the essential component of the tradition, just as Heidegger had mentioned it. And Heidegger claimed, uh, and this began to interest me more and more, that in his words, something in that tradition had been forgotten. Mm. That there had been simply an assumption that this co-presence of determinacy conditions in thought and being um, 
made it so that the only thing that could count as reality was what could be the content of an esoteric judgment proposition. Mm. Mm. Um, and there's a Heidegger scholar in Boston called Daniel Dolphin who called that uh, a logical prejudice, a kind of assumption that the measure of what could be is the measure of what could be rendered knowable by human beings. Mm. And this was also a crucial component of the way in which human beings came to find themselves at home in the world. The world was available to them. They had a place in it because the use of their reason, cognitive capacities in general, could render the world familiar, knowable, mm. uh, not, not estranged. Not, I mean, you know, from one point of view, we, we sort of wake up on this spinning rock, you know, <laughs> uh, orbiting a star among four billion stars in a solar system, mm. that part of a galaxy that in three trillion galaxies in a very small part of the universe. Right. So uh, the, the idea that the universe is actually, in the Greek way of understanding it, fundamentally good, it's receptive to our attempt to know it, is a kind of reassuring reconciliation with the world that it decreases its kind of strangeness and alienation. So it became important both for strictly philosophical reasons and for what one might call existential reasons, that the, mm. the, that the fundamental thing that mattered in the Western tradition from the Greek Enlightenment to the modern European Enlightenment to the later scientific and technological revolution in the 19th and 20th century, um, the continuity of all of that was a kind of assumption, not only about um, beings being what could be available to thought, but about what mattered. Mm. Um, Heidegger thought of uh, the Western tradition as prioritizing as the most significant enterprise that distinguished human uh, conduct on earth to be this quest for knowledge and on the assumption that all there could be was to be knowable. And Heidegger asked, uh, what, why would we assume that the general criterion of significance or meaningfulness, his word was bedeutsamkeit, should be limited to only knowing and the knowables? Mm. Aren't there aspects of human life? And he thought he had discovered in 1927 one of them that are not available for to be an object of a cognitive enterprise. And that was what he called Dasein, uh, his word for human being, which Heidegger um, tried to offer a radically different, or really revolutionary different mm -hmm. interpretation of. So I don't want to go on too long, because I know you have a lot of other questions, but I, mm -hmm. I basically became interested in Heidegger having the view of Hegel I had and arguing that something was missing. Mm. And I became quite interested in what, what did he think was missing? Mm -hmm. And it had to do with this general way of raising the question of how things are available to us, not as substances, physical objects that reflect light rays that are perceptible, but they're available to us in the way they matter to us, in their significance. And that our being on to their significance was not a matter either of subjective projection or of cognitive enlightenment. And so I spent a few years reading Heidegger's work on German idealism, because it had been neglected in Heidegger's studies that when Heidegger wants to bring this point to a complete, you know, a, a, a clear kind of challenge, he says that German idealism, in effect, completed this. But he didn't mean successfully. Mm. He meant that Hegel was the first one to try to show what the complete conditions mm. of the, the knowables, that mm. is, the, the thinkability of the knowables, what the complete conditions absolutely complete. And his word for that was the absolute. The absolute is the concept. Mm -hmm. He meant 
that the conceptual clarification of what could be had been completed. Mm. And Heidegger thought we could detect in that rather hubristic kind of claim uh, something essential in the Western tradition that Hegel was right about, that if we're going to have that tradition, something like what Hegel did had to be possible. And it being impossible because it left out the question of how we approach the issue of significance, mattering, um, it showed us that there was something missing in the entire tradition. Mm. Hegel being the kind of culmination that reveals where we had gone, not wrong, but astray in a way that had left something out. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right, that, you know, Hegel's interaction with German idealism is not that it was necessarily wrong, but that it was incomplete, right, or that it didn't go far enough. There, there's this discussion in, in, in Heidegger, and you mentioned it in the book, about how, how he talked about this idea of there's a kind of implicit assumption that's being made, right, and that we don't go far enough when trying to understand being and uh, what he, as you uh, adequately said, you know, um, revolutionized with this idea of, of Dasein. So I, I guess the, the question is, is, is Heidegger right when he says that the primary availability of beings to human being is material for cognition and judgment, right? In other words, how much of what it means to be, to, to have being is the essential component, is this idea of, of being and, and uh, extend it from that Dasein, is that the missing link that Hegel and many of the other folks in German idealism just kind of assumed and didn't take enough time to really spend to say, well, well, we should probably explore this first before we continue all these other things or, or to at least consider it as in much detail as Heidegger did. What is that link yeah. between the availability of beings to, to being and then, and then the Dasein well, element? I mean, let's put it this way, by, by sort of addressing the question from another direction. I mean, uh, throughout the philosophical tradition, really until Kant, the most important thing for human beings in philosophy was to understand the distinctness of human being. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's most important to us. We, we, we presume we have a special distinctness, that we are self-conscious, that we use language, that we can reason that we can act on the basis of our reasons. And we don't think any other animal is capable of that. There's mm. some controversy about that. But the overwhelming evidence is that we are distinct creatures. And what philosophy has always wanted to know, since, since Socrates said, you know, I, the, the, the one thing I've been told I have to do is know myself by the mm. Delphic Oracle. Socrates meant not know myself as an individual. The Greeks didn't think that way. They, he meant know what it is to be a human being. So mm -hmm. I can know how to live. Mm -hmm. That's been, in one way or another, the central question in philosophy. And the argument for the distinctness of uh, what it is to be a human being is based on the view that we had to discover what special kind of substance we were, mm -hmm. what special kind of thing we were. Mm -hmm. And the assumption all the way through the early modern tradition, Descartes, Leibniz, Christian Wolff, all the way up to, to Kant, to, to a certain extent. Um, was that we had to be both material and immaterial beings. Mm. We had to be minds, souls, and bodies. And the great problems of philosophy were how to connect the two and whether the soul was immortal and whether there was another immortal being, a god, or something like that. Um, and, and one of the challenges of, of Heidegger is to say that that question is completely misposed we're, we're not a kind of being at all. I mean, we are obviously in space and time and we have bodies, 
But to be a human being is to have a distinct experiential path through our existence, always in one way or another informed by the imminent possibility of our death mm-hmm. and the contingency of the world into which we find ourselves thrown. But none of that has to do with what kind of substances we are. I mean, one way or another, we have to assume that substances we are, given what they're made of and how the neurons work, can raise questions and initiate action and be self-conscious. And we'd like to know how all of that operates. But what it is to be a human being is not going to be answered by questions about what kind of being we are. Animals don't need to raise the question of what kind of being they are. But wolves are just wolves. They hunt in packs. They hunt at night. They have their young in the spring. Nobody has to be a wolf philosopher to figure out what it would be to be a good wolf. Mm-hmm. Their species ends are set. And Heidegger thinks exactly the opposite, that nothing is set for us. Mm. Um, that everything, that, that to put it in the famous phrase that began existentialism, existence precedes essence. Mm-hmm. The, the, the way we exist is much more significantly a response to the question of what it is to be a human being than what it is to be this special kind of essence, this special kind of thing. Kant was the first to reject the idea that we had to prove that we were souls or minds, immaterial beings, mm-hmm. in order to justify, for example, our freedom. Um, Kant said we can't know whether we're free or not, but we have to have, from a practical point of view, we have to assume a stance in which we cannot but be committed to the capacity to initiate action on our own. Mm. I mean, no matter what we think we are, robots, machines, that doesn't help when we face what we have to do, whether, whether to go on this podcast or not. I can't just wait to see what my brain's going to do. I have to, I have to make up my mind whether I, I want to talk about Heidegger. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kant was the first one to break with this tradition, but he still thought that in themselves, human beings must be rational substances. So Heidegger thought he didn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. And in 1927, in, in Being in Time, Heidegger tried to come up with a different way of understanding what it is to be a human being by asking what it is for human beings to find their way, direct their lives forward, by being oriented from some sort of conception of meaning, of significance, of importance. And the idea that the primary question is what kind of beings we are, make all those other questions merely subjective. Mm, mm. They can't be objective. There's no knowledge about that. Some people value some things, some things matter to some people, some matter in one tradition, don't matter in another tradition. So Heidegger's main complaint is we, we don't think we have an adequate philosophical way of addressing the question of significant directedness in a life, except by relying on subjective projections of value onto the world. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that's a horrible mistake that has devalued all of the, the relevant domains of mattering and meaningfulness to mere opinion or, or arbitrary projections or individual subjective preferences and so forth. And he thinks that leads to a kind of common nihilism or we've lost confidence that we have any common orienting view of mm. what it is to be a human being. Mm. It, in, in, in understanding these two, so obviously Kant and Hegel are the big ones, right? These are the big guys in, in German idealism. There's this critique. What is the critique of, of Hegel on his categories that he talks about, right? I think you, you see Hegel as this kind of post-Kantian thinker, of course, not just because he comes after him, but this idea of, of what it means after after Kant. And when you're talking about what we are in terms of our categories or our substances or things like that, how 
what, what's the distinction there? But then where does Heidegger say, okay, but this is still missing. We need to know the, the, the way in which being works to really get that. You, you talked about in the beginning, the, um, the, the science of logic that Hegel wrote, where he talks about, about he starts to, starts to talk about some of these aspects of the centrality of being. So where did he not get it that Heidegger said, okay, let's, let's go, let's go further. Let's keep going with this and really get at what this is. So we don't make this kind of, uh, you know, presuppositions about things. Yeah, well, there are several components of that. One of them is just how the logic works. That's a terribly kind of complicated thing. When 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 someone says it's a hard book, it's a hard book. Yeah, the <laughs> the 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 basic premise of Western philosophy is that to be is to be ultimately knowable. That's what it means to mm -hmm. us. Um, Heidegger takes that not to be about you know a kind of semantic definitional issue mm -hmm. that that being just could be defined as that which is in principle determinately discursively knowable by being predicable in some determinate way. Um, Heidegger thinks really what Hegel is saying is that what really matters is the conceptual clarification of the possibility of being. That's the, that's the first philosophy, hmm. the old name for metaphysics. And um, Heidegger said Hegel was right to try to bring to a, a fruition, a culmination in the positive sense that Western assumption. But if you ask yourself, is there an account in the logic of the way in which the knowability of being matters in a, in a human life, why it should matter, how much it matters, how it's connected to other things, you'll find no such discussion of that. It's just assumed. And in his earlier work, much more adventurous, radical work, The Phenomenology of Spirit, which he published in Yena in 1807, mm -hmm. um, Hegel was much more interested in trying to show experientially the indispensability of the quest for knowledge by trying to show how how much we depend on it in more experiential terms. The book was originally called The Science of the Experience of Consciousness. And it's an extraordinary, adventurous, interesting attempt that goes from everything from sense certainty theories to the French Revolution mm -hmm. to uh, the literature of the 18th century and so forth. Um, to try to make the case that human beings are ultimately motivated by the one thing that matters to them the most, understanding themselves. Mm. And that means understanding themselves by understanding what it is to be at all and what distinction they have within being. Mm. But that means that humans become objects of knowledge, like other kinds of objects of knowledge. Mm. And Heidegger's trying to say that's because we've forgotten that what human beings are is eventually something like a product of what matters to them. They are self-interpreting animals, self-directing, self-determining beasts that don't have any kind of fixed species in and don't have a kind of inner conatus or drive to make the self-awareness, self-knowledge the ultimate in, in human life. It's a plausible claim that captivated the West we really need to know, by knowing a special kind of object, what kind of being we are. Mm -hmm. And Heidegger thinks that just distorts everything, because mm -hmm. we, unique in the world, can't be understood to be a mere kind of animal, a distinct species with characteristics that through evolution and biology and neurology determine what is possible for us, what is not, or even what matters to us and what is not. It doesn't. 
what matters to us and the way the world is available to us in its mattering can't be a matter of cognition. Hmm. Hmm. It's, it's, it's very interesting because when you, when you hear it spelled out, it's like, oh, well, why didn't they just think of that before, right? Why, why, why is Heidegger seeing this, right? How is he seeing this and other people didn't? It's more the genius, I guess, of Heidegger. Well, I, yeah, I, I, just a qualification to that, say, um, hmm. Heidegger's view on this rests on an interpretation of the history of philosophy from essentially the pre-Socratics through Hegel. Um, that is quite debatable. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think some of what Heidegger was interested in was already available in the Platonic dialogues. Mm-hmm. Um, Heidegger reads Plato the way Aristotle read him. So he says, look, the, 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 the most important moment of this tradition that I'm after is when Plato argued that the meaning of any being is its idea, mm-hmm. the theory of forms. Mm-hmm. That what it is to be a being is to be an instance of a form. And that's what most matters to know what, as much as we can, what the form is that this is an instance of. Mm-hmm. Well, the theory of ideas only occurs in about half the dialogues. And it, Heidegger never takes seriously uh, Plato's doctrines of things like uh, eros, the nature of human striving, the uh, dialogue situation itself, the, the kind of disclosure, the, the fact that the dialogues always end in uncertainty, that there's no kind of, um, I mean, it's Aristotle that Heidegger is really after, mm-hmm. uh, who wants a set of judgments about what it is to be uh, logically, rationally um, uh, uh, integrated into a kind of systematic knowledge of everything. Mm-hmm. It, Plato doesn't have anything like that. So, you know, you can argue that, that there are figures like Plato, there are figures like Rousseau, there's some figures that influenced Heidegger, like Augustine and Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that there weren't these eruptions of dissatisfaction with, I mean, when I say with Western rationalism, I don't mean to defend irrationalism. Mm-hmm. I just mean to say that there's an issue that's been neglected or forgotten by the enormous priority of this significance given to both the nature of knowability and uh, its meaning for us, mm-hmm. why it's so important to us. Mm-hmm. There are other traditions where it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, philosophy in the West had a beginning, and Hegel, uh, Heidegger thought it had an end. It, it has no longer, that's another question about culmination. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heidegger was saying, you just look around, uh, because Heidegger grew up in a kind of neo-Kantian philosophy of science tradition. So look, philosophy doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore. There isn't in the world right now anybody, if you ask a highly educated person, who's the most important philosopher in the world today, they wouldn't know. Mm. They might they might be able to say who the most important scientist or politician, statesman, celebrity, mm. artist, yeah. but they that there's no public role for philosophy anymore that has the kind of cultural power mm. that the arts or politics or mm. the various other domains of human enterprise have. So mm. he's quite right. Something happened with him. The grand tradition of big philosophical speculation, our priori knowledge about the world, collapsed. And philosophy became much more a kind of reflection on uh, language and a reflection on the sciences. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's quite right that something happened with, with Hegel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of philosophers um, would say that what happened was we just realized what philosophy was trying to do was impossible. <laughs> we, couldn't, we couldn't answer the questions we posed to ourselves. Kant had showed us that and that we should content ourselves with um, uh, clarifying 
the conceptual requirements of the most advanced modern sciences. It's mm. mm. a very interesting lens to put it on. Uh, I think it's, uh, I, I totally agree. I kind of, after that, it was um, on the sciences and language for sure. Um, that's a very, that's a very interesting way of, of putting it. Uh, you talk about in the book, uh, and I'll just say as a kind of footnote for, for, for listeners, um, if I, if I have this right, uh, Heidegger lectured on two people mostly, uh, Aristotle and then I think Nietzsche. Those are the people he really, I mean, just, you know, kind of, you know, consumed himself with in trying to understand all of these things. So this is, as you were saying, he's reading Plato as, as Aristotle would because he was ensconced in Aristotle. Um, and it was, a, you know, super, super uh, influential for, for his philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Meaningfulness. You talk about this a lot in the book. You emphasize meaningfulness of being, right? Um, so what, what did, what did, uh, what did Heidegger mean by this? And, and what do you mean by this about the meaningfulness of being? So not just the, 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 the entity of it or the thing of it, right. But the meaningfulness of it, how is it more primordial as opposed to this kind of conceptual and kind of necessity thing? Yeah. Well, what Heidegger's words here are, are words about like a search for fundamentality, firstness, uh, originariness. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the experiential dimension of of the availability of beings, and the famous example in being in time is uh, what he called Werkzeug or equipment tools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so he asks the reader to imagine a carpenter going to a job and picking up a hammer and nails and then a saw and then the boards and putting it together, and he asks. Is it plausible that what the carpenter is relying on is a propositional knowledge about how each of these tools work? And as he uses them, he's consulting his knowledge of, well, to pick up a hammer, you first pick up the bottom of the handle. That he knows all this in some sort of implicit propositional way. And Heidegger, of course, said, that's just ridiculous. Mm. No, nobody is consulting rules. Um, they are... Um, in a kind of practical know-how kind of way, not a knowing that kind of way, mm-hmm. in a practical know-how way, knowing which step to do first, which is important, which tool would be required for that. It just comes from a deep experiential embeddedness in their relation to the world that is very different from, since, especially in modern tradition, since Descartes, the primary model was there are subjects who are interacting with these separate objects in the world. Mm-hmm. And what we worry about is whether the way in which the objects affect our sensibilities gives us access to the way they really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Descartes' sort of founding problem of modern philosophy, perhaps we only have our own subjective representations of how they are. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know the way the world really is. We're, we're caught behind a veil of representation or perception or something. Yeah. And so uh, Heidegger said, if you think of the example I've given you, and then you think of the way that problem is posed, they don't fit together. There's no problem for the carpenter. Mm. I mean, he doesn't have to know for sure what the sensible properties of the object are to use them. Their mm. meaning is in their usableness in the tasks that he's performing. And that meaning is embedded in a horizon of possible meaning mm. that includes building houses, real estate, commercial enterprises, you know, his family life, the money, the, the all of this. And none of it has to do with a subject 
perceiving properties of an object that then trigger reference to how to use it by reference to propositional knowledge. So that's that's the example in being a kind that became very important for trying to argue our relation to the world is not a relation of subjects trying to know the properties of objects. The world is immediately familiar to us mm. in this is, kind of immediate sense. Th- that, this is that Descartes never got straight. Go ahead. Yeah, this is his idea of readiness to hand and president hand, right? He makes right. this distinction between the two of how we use things where something can be there and we can we can use it, right? The, the object isn't thinking when someone's going to pick me up again and use me. It's it's there implicitly, whereas you can have these ways in which something can be present at hand that doesn't mean ready to hand, and there's a distinction there. But he's trying to look at the not just the utility, but the the way yeah. in which it is of how, how we right, use things. Right. The, the word for present at hand in German is Suhansein. That means just being to hand, being there in front of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, he means ultimately by the present at hand the thinking of the world as substances existing continuously through time, where time is understood as a sequence of nows. Mm-hmm. So the computer screen we're both looking at is just a substance, a thing mm-hmm. that has perceptual qualities that allow us uh, its availability. But if you if you think about and and uh, Vorhandensein, um, readiness to hand is not just present there in front of us, but for something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or its usability, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Heidegger wants to know, well, in what way, what is that mode of understanding? It isn't propositional. Mm. We don't really encounter the world as organized as subjects and predicates or antecedents and consequences the way the logical apparatus of discursive intelligibility says. When I walk into a classroom, everything about everything is immediately familiar to me. I'm not I'm not making various judgments about how to use various objects like lecterns or books or PowerPoints mm-hmm. or something. I'm just immersed in a world yeah. that the idea of a separation from it and then a, a calculation of the properties of the things I'm dealing with is an abstraction. Mm. So Heidegger said, rather than subjects confronting objects, we have to think of our involvement with the world as being in the world. Mm-hmm. In Weltzeit. Mm-hmm. We don't we're not separate from the world of meaningfulness we're immersed in it in a way that is not an object for our attention it's just immediately saturated through our engagement with everything hmm. so t- bring us bring us to to meaningfulness so how does he see the meaningfulness of these things we're we're in a we're in a i'll, I'll come to worldhood in a minute because he has some fascinating ideas about that but we're, we're in a world and we're having these experiences and there's these kind of um, if you will, schemas, or there's these like, scripts that we have, you know, I, I walk into a restaurant, I sit down, I do these things, but I don't have to know how to do these things. I'm, I'm doing them. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's, where do we get the meaningfulness from that? Because it's not that we're, it's not just a subjective thing only, right? It's what, what is the, that meaningfulness piece? Well, um, I mean, apart from, the example of, of tools, he has lots of other examples. I mean, uh, the, 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 the primary question is, in what way are beings available in yeah. our experience? Yeah. Fundamentally, yeah. first, at the most primary level. He doesn't have any objection to there being a way of stepping back from familiarity as the primary availability. 
and raising questions. He just wants to about distinct properties, physical properties, scientific properties, and so forth. Of course, we can do that. He has no objection to that. Hmm. He just means to say that's not the way the world is originally available. It's available because certain things become salient to us, hmm. given the tasks we're performing in the kind of world we live in, and other things are not. Hmm. So, as you note in your in your outline, I try to discuss how Heidegger distinguishes our experience from those of animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, animals have a world too, but they're velt arm, they're world poor. Hmm. He means an animal um, in experiencing the world also has a world, a distinct world, one that, however, is set firmly by its species characteristics. Hmm. So a bear out in the woods wandering around it's not that he doesn't see the power lines. They just don't mean anything to him. Mm-hmm. It just, it doesn't rise to any kind of salience. Mm-hmm. The, its perceptual availability is completely insignificant. The primary saliences that emerge for the bear are food, shelter, mates, enemies, mm-hmm. prey, predators, like humans. You know, that, that's what shows up for the bear. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true of us. The, the, this question of availability should be understood in terms of these kinds of saliences of significance. What matters to us as we engage with the world and other human beings in a context that's historically specific, this historical world that is the source of possible meaningfulness. Hmm. Our, our, our ability to wander in such a familiar way through the lived world we experience um, since it's not a, a matter of our our deciding what has significance or not, is a kind of inherited socialized familiarity that comes from the particular kind of world we live in, a historical world, hmm. the late modern world in which technology saturates every element of our life. Hmm. So there, there are. It's interesting here. So get, we can. I want to talk about worldhood for a minute, right? Because I, I find it so fascinating. Uh, Heidegger, you know, so his mentor for a little bit was, you know, uh, Edmund Husserl and Husserl talked about intentionality, right? And, uh, but Heidegger didn't like that too much. It was not the right formulation. And so Heidegger talked about this idea of, of being in the world. And there are, I, I cannot remember it's, it's in the, either the first part or whatever of, of, uh, might be in the introduction of being in time. Um, no, no, it's in the first part. It's uh, this Heidegger talks about four different types of world, right? One of them being worldhood. Um, one of them, there's different ways in which he looks at the world and how we look at the world of how we say how we are. Cause it's not, it's not enough to say, well, yeah, you, you operate in the world, right? There's a, there's a, there's a conceptual way in which people are doing that, whether they realize that or not. And so, and he, he saw world being in the world and, and worldhood as connected to one's Dasein. So how do you how do you understand what what was what was Heidegger trying because it seems like he's trying to give context in how we understand our being how does he use how is Husserl's intentionality not enough and what were these different ways in which Heidegger was was talking about world well Husserl I mean um, the 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 thing that really impressed Heidegger about Husserl uh, was Husserl's resolve to return to the original human experience of the world. Mm. That is to try to find a method for isolating the core elements and what made an experience of the world possible. Mm. 
that mm -hmm. it has a kind of Kantian heritage, what mm -hmm. Husserl was trying to do. And he invented this method of phenomenology mm -hmm. where he said, look, the, the fundamental aspect of any human experience is that it's a conscious experience and all consciousness is consciousness of a content, an object of consciousness. So you can't be conscious without being conscious of something. You know, and so that directedness is the primary issue for Husserl. He says, let's figure that out and we'll figure everything out after that. So he said, the first thing we have to do is just consider only that relationship. Let's bracket the question of whether the, the object exists or anything, but a human being experiences the consciousness of an object. Forget about whether it exists or anything else. We want the, the conceptual possibility of that. How, how can consciousness be onto something determinately? Hmm. And so Husserl then invented this method for trying to isolate contingencies that were not relevant to that so we'd get down to the essence of what it is to perceive a perceptual object, to remember a memory, to imagine a city, how we could articulate what must be going on for that to be possible. Mm. And Heidegger said, well, you're, you're right to try to go back to the fundamental nature of human experience, the human experience of the human, because say a neurologist working in perceptual theory, they're not, they're not, they want to know how the light rays affect the, the, the rods and cones of the eye and how that's connected to the brain. But none of that has to do with the perception of beauty or uh, something being startling or uh, there being something that isn't salient and that why it's not salient in the background. Um, and Heidegger is trying to say, well, Husserl, you've created a kind of artificial problem because nobody experiences the world as simply an object for consciousness mm -hmm. the world is already saturated in meaningfulness and the separation you're creating is a is an abstraction mm. from what is originally non-separable yeah which is being in the world right because you've you've said let's just concentrate on the relation between consciousness and the object and get down to the essentials of what's necessary to make that relationship possible and Heidegger said, well, that's just a game. It doesn't have anything to do with the primordial experience of the world by a being like Dasein, open to saliences and significances. As I was saying about animals, you know, they have this very limited mm -hmm. range of what shows up for them. We don't. We don't have any you know, particularly fixed. I mean, we're afraid of things that are predatory and we're, we desire things that look like they'd be pleasant. But... Those things vary among people quite a lot. They're not they're not species characteristically like like they are for for animals. So Heidegger Heidegger wanted to replace the subject object phenomenological model of consciousness with this immersion in a world that he called in der Weltzeit, being in the world. Hmm. That's that that he he made that up to try to say I'm not talking about a subject in the world mm -hmm. as if they're two separate things. Hmm. I'm, I'm talking about something that's inextricable from each other mm. the subject and the world are both components of whatever it is that shows up as salient for a design engaging with the world mm. um, and it's it's really our engagement with the world that's primary not consciousness yeah, yeah. so this term comportment which mm -hmm. is a translation of the which is the way in which we engage the world we're always engaging the world even when we uh, when we stop and just perceive it, 
Mm-hmm. That's an interruption that's part of an engagement for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like a neutral observing stance in the world, except one that is engaged in for a certain kind of scientific or experimental purpose. Yeah. So Husserl, he thought, had got the issue of going back to the human experience of the human as the foundational thing philosophy needed to understand, but it couldn't be addressed in the kind of quasi-scientific, quasi-Kantian way that Husserl did. But, I mean, put it, putting it all in one, one sort of summary formula, what Heidegger wanted to do is uh, change philosophy from being rationally analytic to being interpretive. Because meaning is really a subject for interpretation. Yeah. It's not subject for cognition. If if you ask yourself what matters to me and why it matters to me, you're actually engaged in a process of self-understanding that's interpretive. Mm-hmm. You know, so like doing a podcast is important to you. You ask yourself why. Mm-hmm. You're you're interrogating, interpreting what it means, mm-hmm. where it where it fits in. To the regimen of your of your life, and that's not something you can just read off from right. facts of your life. You well, it means to, it means something to me as an individual. It's going to mean something different to another individual, right? Another being. True, but it can't mean something to you as an individual apart from the current world of technology, podcasts, yeah. transmission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. get to decide what a podcast is and <laughs> right. how it works mm-hmm. and what it means in the culture we have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything about that is part of the world you mm-hmm. live in. Mm-hmm. So the inflections that have to do with you are inflections of a common context mm-hmm. that I call a world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very nicely put. Yeah, there's there's this other other thing that comes up in in the book, which is interesting as well, is this idea of standing presence, which I thought was very very interesting. That also kept kind of uh, appearing. You know, for 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 Heidegger, what was this idea of standing present? And I think it was here that you, you you were interacting with 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 Heidegger and Kant, and how he rejects some of Kant's metaphysical claims. But this idea of standing presence what is is it also this kind of idea of being in the world as opposed to just kind of looking at it as from a subject object? What's this idea well, here? Standing on Wesenheit, standing presence in Heidegger is a bad thing. It's it's part of the metaphysical mistake. Hmm. Uh, he's a little confusing about this because um, uh, in his terminology, uh, standing presence is just the way he's trying to capture the idea that what is what really matters about being is grasping it in its mere present at hand characteristics. Hmm. Uh, standing presence, you know, it's just, I mean, our sense of being that we inherit is just, well, being is what's there. Mm-hmm just standing present there. Mm. That, that's, that's what it is. Um, but Heidegger thinks the way in which meaning is disclosed in our engagements with the world is not presence, like Anwesenheit, but Anwesende, the presencing of meaning. So mm. he starts to try to use, it, it can be very confusing because he's making up all these words. <laughs> standing Anwesenheit stand, is not, a, it's not a, a technical term of art in the philosophical tradition. Substance is, and it's really his word for substance, mm. the underlying nature of things that we have predicates of, but that there's an essential core of what it is. Uh, but what he wants to interpret is how we are onto, receptive to, have available to us these saliences of significance, 
Mm-hmm. And they're what by what he they're they're available in what he calls events of meaningfulness. We're on to them as they happen. Mm-hmm. What matters to you is the matter of happening. Mm-hmm. What he later calls geschehen. Um, as he tries to find words to capture the way in which things just show up for us as matter. You know, you didn't, you know, if, 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 you, if you're interested in opera, it's very unlikely that you started out by figuring out what ought to matter to you, what kind of person you want to be, mm-hmm. make a checklist, <laughs> read liner notes on albums, go to a couple <laughs> of operas, try to make yourself an opera. That's not, it doesn't happen that way. Right, right. The beauty and significance and power of opera for you happens. Mm-hmm. You, you, some a friend takes you to an opera. Boom. Yeah. That moment mm-hmm. is what Heidegger is trying to get at in his theory of art, uh, because mm-hmm. he he wants to say that our um, our way of being onto things that show up as saliently mattering is a matter of what he calls stimmel, mm-hmm. uh, attunement. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not cognition, not consciousness of, you know, mattering is not a matter of, you know, what matters to you politically. It's not really uh, originally a matter of propositional formulations that you rank in order of significance. You hear a politician and it pisses you off or it attracts you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, philosophers sometimes and, and psychologists want to interpret that in terms of a kind of reactive mode to something that's been dispositionally prepared for you by background. Mm-hmm. How do you think that all sort of levels everything out to a kind of crude notion of interaction of mm-hmm. objects impinging on subjects who have been disposed to respond by various stimuli in the past? But but how do you think that's all much more involved in having been immersed in a world of possible significance? And a world is like that, a kind of horizon of possibility within which various inflections of those possibilities show up for you as significant in a way that is disclosed Mm. rather than serve as an object of an assertive judgment. Mm. So that's why standing presence is one thing. And this anvesenda, this presencing of mattering, the Mm. geschehen or event of mattering is what he wants to try to. I mean, it, it can get very clumsy because he's not great at formulating clear terminology for all of this. But he is onto something, I think, in in this question of bedeutsamkeit, of significance, salience, how things show up. Mm. Yeah, this is this is. I'm assuming why he talks later about a kind of an uncovering or an unveiling or a, a, a kind exactly. of you know, pulling the veil behind, you know, to see was it this that's. That it's 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 there, but you have to find the like you have to you remove the concealment. The, all of these things that he uses is 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 kind of connected with this idea, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the objection by by traditional philosophers has been, okay, you're trying to tell me that there's an experiential moment where something is disclosed to you of significance. Mm-hmm. What is it? Put it in a proposition. Tell me what it is. <laughs> and therein you have the big problem. That does not seem like an unreasonable request. Right. I mean, if somebody says, I, I just found out that, that that thing I thought mattered so much to me, just for one moment, something happened and it just collapsed. Yeah. And now it's just terribly boring. Mm-hmm. Well, well, tell me what mattered and tell me what matters to you now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not getting the point if you raise that question. Right. 
I mean, and philosophers say, well, then you're not saying anything because if, you know, if, if a disclosure discloses something true, mm. it has to have truth conditions. Mm. It has to be able to be decided mm. whether it's true or false. Mm. And the only thing that can be true or false are propositions. Mm. So this is just a dead end into mysticism and obscurantism. And you've got to, but, you know, if you think about that, um, it just, it makes a hash of the kind of interpretive things. I mean, for one thing, you go to a psychoanalyst and you say, I don't know why, but I keep dating the same kind of woman over and over again. And uh, they always last three months, not four, not five, not two. And then they run away. They, they don't like me or I push them away. What am I doing? It's the same kind of woman. It's always 32-year-old blonde mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A job at an accounting firm. Yeah, I can't tell you how many. And the psychiatrist says, uh, you hate your father and you want to sleep with your mother. <laughs> the, the whole idea of psychoanalysis is you have to come to that disclosure yourself. And the same thing is true when you teach. When you teach a poem, for example, and mm. uh, there's a famous uh, Shakespeare sonnet um, where he says something like, my, my love is nothing like the sun. And the student says, what does that mean? And the professor says, well, it means his, his love is not very pretty, but she's okay with him. <laughs> and then you ask yourself, you know, has the student understood the poem? No, what you're trying to do in teaching is recreate the experience of the disclosure, because the experience of the disclosure is inseparable yeah. from the meaning of the disclosure. Mm-hmm. It can't be paraphrased or translated, or we don't need poetry. That's right. I mean, we, the, the student, I mean, very often initial students of poetry, when you work through in a class and you get to an interpretation, they say, well, why didn't you say that? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and this, this is the problem we have with the, the topic you're raising of disclosure, of there being something unveiled or unconcealed. Most traditional philosophers would want to say, what? Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. me what it is, and then I'll tell you how to find out if it's, if it's true. So. You read a novel like Upton Sinclair's *The Jungle*, and you say that is uh, that's a truthful account of working conditions in factories in the early 20th century. Right. And then somebody says, "Well, okay, let's see what whether it's empirically true." And you say, "No, no, that's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to show what it does to people mm-hmm. who have to experience those conditions, and that's not something you can detect by empirical investigation." Mm-hmm. Great art and literature has to embody the experiential dimension of yeah. significance, meaningfulness, and its failure in situations that can't be paraphrased into sociological or empirical psychological terms. Mm-hmm. And that's a very hard argument to make because people are very skeptical about interpretation as a major vehicle of philosophy because it doesn't have fixed truth conditions. It can't really be formulated the way scientific propositions can be. But most of what matters to us in life is a matter of interpretation, not statable empirical proposition. We're not in any doubt about empirical propositions and how to how to verify them. There are some that are, you know, controversial in psychology or economics and so on. So yeah, we investigate all but what matters to us is a matter of interpretive complexity that you need a Henry James or a Marcel Proust to try to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, most philosophers are very uncomfortable with that. And Heidegger was the champion of this turn in philosophy. Mm-hmm. That we should be we should be interested in the interpretation of human experience, 
mm-hmm. not a recording of some third person external observer kind of account of what propositions we can verify about human behavior. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you so uh, wonderfully kind of expressed, you know, the big reason why I like Heidegger so much. It's this mm-hmm. fact specifically, because he does all the hard work. Uh, of explaining all of these things, but he's trying to explain that interpretive process in a way that, you know, is organized and makes sense. And is, you know, obviously he was a brilliant student of philosophy himself. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you. He, he talks about this idea, uh, this is the last thing on, on Kant, and I'll ask about yeah. him and Heidegger, or excuse me, him and he- uh, Hegel, is this idea of knowing is primarily of intuiting. So this is kind of getting to your point that you're saying there, that the role of imagination, right? And, you know, he's talking, you're talking about Kant's pure concepts, right? Kant, Kant loved to talk about this. And so where does Heidegger see imagination, intuition, uh, and understanding as these kind of derivative functions for that? Like you don't have these pure concepts. I mean, you do, but you also have them with these other elements with these variables here of intuition and imagination. How does uh, Heidegger interact with uh, Kant's pure concepts this way? Yeah, I find there are two dimensions of this that, uh, that I find just fascinating about his relation to Kant. One is theoretical and one is practical. One, one has to do with the moral philosophy, one has to do with the theoretical philosophy. So Heidegger appreciated that the big break in modern philosophy um, that, in a way, for many philosophers afterwards, rendered the, the classical tradition of philosophy up to Kant um, severely damaged was Kant's claim that human reason, the faculty of reason attempting to know without benefit of empirical experience. What can reason know without benefit of an empirical experience? The classical answer had been based on something like intellectual intuition, that reason was open to the noetic structure of the world, Hmm. that reason could detect ideas, forms, abstract objects, mathematics, substance, Mm. essential properties, essences, that there could be intellectual intuitions of the nonsensible characteristics, which were the real characteristics Mm -hmm. of the world. Mm. That's the rationalist tradition. And Kant said, well, the reason we haven't come up to any, any, any kind of progress or answer is that reason is essentially a spontaneity, an activity. Mm. It isn't passive. It has no receptive power. It relies on what we know from our sensible contact with the world and the extension of our senses in technical and detection devices that magnify or help detect in an extension of our sensibility what's out there. But the only way we get any information about what's out there is through our sensible contact with the world. And then the reason organizes it, you know, sort of, uh, has a kind of function of uh, synthesizing hmm. the results of this empirical encounter that our senses provide. So Kant thought, well, what, what is there left for philosophy to do if that's the case? Well, it turns out that Kant wanted to show that the mere sensible contact with the world wouldn't provide us with anything hmm. unless there were subjective conditions that required something of the world that the world could meet very complicated kind of argument because it is not just the case that Kant wanted to show we impose our categorical conditions on the world. He wanted to show both that there are subjective conditions for the possibility of our encounter with the sensible world making some sense to us and that the world could satisfy those conditions. The latter part's often 
omitted in accounts of Kant's idealism. But he wanted to he wanted to show how that's how that's possible. Hmm. And what interested so part of this is the logical prejudice. It's a way of measuring what could be available by what we require of it hmm. to be available. Hmm. And that that subjectivizes hmm. um, the results in a way that we we call idealism. Hmm. That that we know the world only insofar as it's available to our cognitive capacities, which hmm. we can determine a priori mm-hmm. must be these rather than those and that they work as in its transcendental deduction. Mm-hmm. Um, but what interested Heidegger was that in the first edition, Kant says, well, you know, there's something, we are concepts and intuitions, sensible intuitions, pure concepts, and they fit together somehow. Uh, how, how's that possible? There must be concepts and intuitions as faculties must have a common root. Mm-hmm. There must be they must be part of a continuum so they fit together. They can't just be separate. Because how do intuitions tell us which concepts to apply, and how do concepts know which intuitions to apply to? Mm. If they're not if they're not fit together in some way, and in the first critique, Kant said, "Well, you know, the common root might be the imagination. Mm. It might be our capacity to project possible instances of experience in a way that." fits together with our cognitive demands, but are not themselves cognitive activities. This is, this is an extremely brief summary. It won't make a lot of sense. But what, what, what Heidegger sort of had an intuition was that Kant was making as the primary way in which the world is available to us, not cognition or sensation, but this imaginative projection of experience, hmm. this kind of existential um, insertion of our search for meaning in the through the imagination mm. into experience. That really interested Heidegger. So in 1929, he wrote this fantastic book called Kant and the Problem of Metaphysics, mm-hmm. in which you know he did what he always did. He's trying to say the thing that's important about this guy is he anticipates me. Um, mm-hmm. And he's right on the verge of an existential kind of transformation of the primacy of cognition into something that relied much more on... Um, a faculty that couldn't be characterized as just conceptual classification. He didn't say a lot about what he thought imagination was doing in the first edition. As, you know, Kant published uh, 1781, he published the critique, six years later he published second edition, in which he rewrote the argument that Hegel was interested in, the transcendental deduction of the categories. And there, Heidegger said, Kant lost his nerve, mm-hmm. and he went back to just the cognitive enterprise. Mm-hmm. And he left out, he just considered the imagination a kind of version of the understanding. And so Kant was still part of this tradition that conceived of being as what we require of it to be knowable. Mm-hmm. And so left out what it was about the availability of being that mattered to us. It just assumed that its cognitive availability mattered to us without showing that it did or what the implications of that were or anything. So basically, um, Hegel thought Kant was right on the verge of a radical breakthrough because he tried to show that thinking was finite. Hmm. Um, Reason had no uh, noetic access to the world, and it depended on something other than reason for its orientation in the world, but he thought it was the imagination. Hmm. And he should have have gone further with that, Hmm. but instead he he went back to the whatever is cognizable is what there is. Hmm. Hmm. That's very, very interesting how you know, Heidegger's picking these things up and then saying, okay, you know, here's, here's what if we, we continued on with this. 
So for, for Hegel, um, you, you, you summarize that Hegel has these main three uh, components, the, the ordinary spatial temporal. So what the world is possible, the a priori knowledge about the world, the science of pure thinking, and what is reality, the really real world. And I guess the question I have here is, is what is the connect? I mean, you can, you can, you can set it up further if you want on Hegel, but what is the connection between Hegel's Geist uh, spirit and Heidegger's Dasein's kind of existence or human existence for thinking and idealism? How, how do you see that connection between these two powerhouses of German philosophy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, perhaps the uh, first thing I should say about Kant, I left out this moral dimension because in, uh, in his lecture, oh, yes. the basic problems of phenomenology, he was also interested in this notion of finitude. Mm hmm. That that um, which is another way of putting this whole point that that in Hegel, I mean, of course we're finite creatures. We die, we get sick, yeah, um, we we can't fly. You know, we just we're finite. Mm -hmm. But intellectually, we can comprehend that completely, not completely know everything, but we can completely know what it would be to know anything. That's the absolute. No more surprises. This, this, this is the conceptual structure of the universe, hmm. the absolute. We, we could do that. And, of course, the thing Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Heidegger are, and Adorno and a lot of people are trying to emphasize is how do we take account of the fact that that's not so, that we're finite, that, that the, the domain of knowable being is one thing. And the domain of what there is of significance is another thing hmm. that we don't know and that we're left adrift in, in ways that require this complex interpretive capacity that doesn't have a resolution. How do we come to terms with that? Hmm. Um, so what he liked about Kant's moral theory was, yeah, as you know, Kant, Kant thinks he can demonstrate that human beings are obligated to a moral law a universal law that is the form of pure practical reason. But what interested um, Heidegger was that in his second critique of uh, the critique of practical reason, Kant kind of admitted that our the grip of morality on our lives was not simply a matter of acknowledging what reason requires, but a matter of what Kant called moral feeling, hmm. a, a, a feeling of elevation and importance that he called Achtung, respect, hmm. that, that our experience of what morality requires of us makes sense to us, not because we're purely rational beings, because it makes us feel a certain way, which for Heidegger is a kind of introduction to this non-discursive availability of significance, hmm. this feeling of respect for ourselves as moral beings. So. Hmm. But but to go to go a little further to your question about guys, Heidegger was disappointed that Kant thought, nevertheless, we're still basically a special kind of thing, a rational substance, and the effect of reason on our sensibility is due to the kind of being we are. That he he completely changed from, and this emphasis on finitude to to trying to make this the sort of superordinate issue still rationality now when hegel tried to say that no what it is to be 
a human being has much more to do with our sociality, that we're not individual rational monads who are related to each other by our common relation to the moral law, all of us, you know, acknowledging the same moral. That's what makes us a kind of social being. Yeah. Uh, that this this is a much more interactive, historically evolving uh, process uh, that Hegel thought, nevertheless, didn't result in relativism. Mm. That the, the interacting, evolving historical process still had within it a kind of basic drive that human beings have, a conatus, that Hegel called reason. Mm. So Geis is still a, a product of the human attempt to understand itself as a self-actualizing being. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't have a kind of a substantial quality to it, but nevertheless, the core uh, dynamic of the developmental nature of human guys did reason. Dasein mm. is, not, is not that kind of a being. It, it, it isn't a being. It is kind of, all it is is being open to saliences of significance. And so the role of reason could play an important role in a particular world, in a particular way, but it's not a substantial, he says, nevertheless, the fact that Hegel doesn't think of Geist as a thing, but as this kind of complex historical product, it doesn't matter. It's not really uh, a revolution. It's still a kind of, uh, it's still caught in the idea of a special kind of thing. Mm. A special kind of thing has this rational dissatisfaction with itself as a lack of self-knowledge leads it to different different forms of life mm. that Hegel thinks he can give, again, a logos of, a rational account of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a super, super interesting, this idea between this openness and then the, the actualizing piece of it is, is very, very interesting. I want to make I'll tell you, bit. one of the things that interests me about Heidegger right now is it's pretty obvious that Hegel was wrong. You know, that the development of the of the 19th century, sort of basic forms of sociality, the market economy, the nuclear mm -hmm. family, mm -hmm. the representative state, and so forth, did not resolve the question of what it is to be a human being mm. in a way that was sort of ultimately satisfactory. The world fell apart in 1914, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it fell apart again in 1939. Mm -hmm. right. And right. the idea that we have we have discovered what it is to be a human being by discovering the kind of engine of moral progress in human history. Um, that that began to seem to me um, a very hard thesis to defend. Mm, yeah, 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 sure. Just real quick, I want to ask this because I thought it was interesting. I, I find his work interesting. We we didn't get to to Fichte. Maybe you can sneak him in here somewhere. But um, this idea that Schelling had, you can just briefly a footnote on this is that he had this Schelling had this thinking that that Hegel uh, does not exit the realm of uh, the conceptual, right? Especially with these ideas on nature, which Schelling has some interesting ideas on nature. Um, what is what is the role that that Heidegger was seeing with Schelling's contribution? There was um there was a, a book that came out recently. I don't know if it was lectures or something like uh, uh, something else about Heidegger's ideas with Schelling. Um, talk about some of the other. Um, uh, the players here, Schelling, you can mention Fichte if you want, that were also part of German idealism, doing kind of certain different things. I know Schelling's ideas on nature are very fascinating, but what is this idea of that Hegel doesn't exit the realm of the conceptual uh, when it comes to nature? What, what was uh, Heidegger's thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah. Um, Hegel claimed to 
overcome the subject-object dualism of Cartesianism. Mm. And Schelling translated, uh, 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 attacked the setup of that problem. Um, the subject-object relationship is neither a subjective problem nor an objective problem. It has, it has a peculiar, the, the resolution of it is not subjects determining objects as in idealism or objects determining subjects as in empiricism. Kant thought he had a kind of mediated response, but Schelling thought that the whole question had to be translated back into how could nature produce, uh, how could out of nature emerge hmm. a subject-object yeah. distinction? Um, since it's neither a subjective nor an objective problem. So Schelling had this, this theory about what he called an indifference point, indifference point that was neither subject nor object, that must be presupposed prior to the division of subject and object, which Hegel assumes in order to resolve later. But what about before there was a subject-object distinction? Hmm. Pure nature. And Schelling claimed there was no, that, so that's one element of Schelling's critique. Hegel, that's the one Hegel called in the preface to the phenomenology, the, the night in which all cows are black. Hmm. just complete indeterminacy. There's nothing to be said about it. Hmm. I'm much more sympathetic to that hmm. Hmm. than uh, Hegel is. Uh, the, 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 the second point is the one you mentioned that Kierkegaard also mentioned, that, that Hegel's account of, of what it is to be a human being is just to be an instance of this self-realizing geist. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't help philosophy understand what it means to an individual mm. to be that. Mm. There's, you know, what we need to get to the individual is something like poetry or novels, theater, mm. or a completely different, or in Kierkegaard's case, religious experience. Mm. Um, that philosophy is inadequate to um, conceptualize. Because it's something that transcends the conceptual. Mm. And one of the things that transcends the conceptual is the concrete individual. Hegelians say, well, no, Hegel has an account of that. He, he has an account of why there must be something un, ex, inexplicable by the conceptual moment it plays in ethical life. And because it's very important that people have their concrete individuality. But even to put it that way is to say something that's like theoretically derivative. Mm-hmm. And the the absolute uniqueness of an individual path through life is not something that is really a Hegelian theme uh, that that emerges in modernity. It's not an ancient theme either. Um, that that we have to somehow account for the fact that each experiential path through life is so unbelievably distinct mm. that there's no conceptual way to articulate interpretively what it ma- how it matters to someone to be that person. Hmm. Um, so Schelling had in these, both of these major criticisms of Hegel um, can't get outside the conceptual. Um, on, on the basis of this concern for um, what would eventually emerge as the only availability being possible as something through art, which Heidegger himself tried to Mm-hmm. articulate with this concept of poetic thinking. Mm. Yeah. So last two questions here. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you, you see Heidegger as uh, 
kind of the first genuine confrontation with Hegel in the post-Hegelian European tradition uh, that metaphysics responds to this being of logic, or as logic, I should say, uh, that's thinking about being of beings. Talk about uh, just generally about how Heidegger as this uh, post-Hegelian um, confrontation uh, and, and what, is, what does he see this you know, being as logic kind of thing? Well, I mean, Heidegger produced this kind of revolution in philosophy in Europe. Uh, oh. Students from all over Germany came to Marburg and Freiburg uh, to sit at his feet, all kinds of people uh, from all over Europe. Um, and he had this, this, especially after World War II and the, the disillusionments of World War II, not to mention disillusionments with Heidegger's own behavior. Yeah. Um, but there was a there was a sense of uh, the inadequacy of the traditional ways we had come to understand ourselves, given what we had to try to understand uh, in trying to understand the Holocaust, the, uh, the destruction, the insanity of mm-hmm. an entire world at war again, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very briefly after it fell apart once before, mm-hmm. economically as well as militarily. Um, so the appeal of Heidegger after 1945 was even higher, uh, not in Germany because of Heidegger's uh, position in the Nazi party, where he was forbidden to teach until the 50s, uh, much later in the 50s, mm-hmm. but in France and Italy, to some extent in the Scandinavian countries, but um, in, in the 50s, uh, after the translation of Being in Time in the 60s, uh, uh, it, uh, this attraction for an idea that we did not have adequate ways of understanding ourselves mm. manifestly did not have mani- um, prompted th- this kind of uh, search for a new beginning in philosophy. Mm. Heidegger came to even not use the word new metaphysics anymore, just called about it, that what philosophy should do is start thinking. Mm. It wasn't terribly helpful. He wanted, he wanted to try to avoid mm. words associated with the past. So mm. the French existentialist tradition and then the French structuralist tradition, the French post-structuralist tradition, influence of the post-structuralist and deconstructive efforts in the United States all stem from Heidegger. So his main influence was in literary criticism, uh, theology, some aspects of anthropology, and a, a kind of pretty much continuous but isolated school of continental philosophy in Europe and the United States. Mm. But his influence on culture, on art history, architecture, yeah. uh, literature, literary criticism has been quite quite profound and is, is ongoing despite all the controversies about mm-hmm. uh, his execrable mm-hmm. personality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the, the last question is, is kind of how you end the book. It's the last chapter in the book, which I thought was wonderful. I, you know, I, I see a lot of, you were talking about it earlier. I was thinking about it, you know, this is where I feel Heidegger is really pulling a lot from Nietzsche here, you know, Nietzsche with his philosophy of life. Uh, and I think both of them both believed, although they described it in different ways, that truth is seen through art. Again, that kind of unveiling that, this, you know, concealment, you know, getting rid of the concealment. How do, how do we, you know, how do we understand Heidegger's idea about, poetic thinking and the role of art as it's important for, for understanding, you know, truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, 
he, 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 going back to the earlier issue you raised about disclosure, what he calls aletheia, uncovering, um, there's a famous, at least a famous to me by Bernard Williams phrase, um, there's a difference between what we think we think and what we really think. Mm-hmm. And one of the roles of art is to awaken us to what we really think, that we didn't mm-hmm. know thought. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a traditional role for philosophy. Socrates um, and the original task of philosophy was to remind us not of something new, but of what we already know, mm-hmm. that we don't know we know. And the role of art very often is this um, the sense of awakening to areas of human significance and why they matter that we can't quite translate into articulable scales of mattering, you know, that so that this is more salient than that or that ought to matter more than that. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. But the way in which being in the world we're in right now, what what has come to matter in the common currency of the world, and especially how what has come to matter has pushed out so many other dimensions of mattering is really available only sort of out of the corner of our eye, what we've lost, what the diminution of significance, you know, little, you know, enormously powerful things like the way in which social media has destroyed the formation of political will, uh, the way in which the, the public sphere has been so eroded by social media and the silo effects of social media. And the way in which all of that is connected both to capitalism and to the conditions uh, that had to be in place, very broad, deep conditions that allow capitalism to emerge. Um, those are very hard to get at um, by traditional sociological historical uh, accounts. We we need everybody from Rousseau to Diderot to Flaubert to Proust to really give us a sense of what has happened to us. Um, and of course, when you say that, people say, okay, where, what? <laughs> and we talked about this before, that there's no discursive translation for that. It's the task of interpretive critics to send people back to the work in a way that helps them illuminate what's in the work for themselves. Mm. That's really the task of teaching. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's very nicely said. Well, uh, Robert, what can I say? I mean, this is, uh, this is such a, a fantastic conversation about uh, a book I really loved, about a philosopher uh, who, who I really admire for all of his philosophical work. Uh, thank you. I, I can't thank you enough for, for, for the conversation and for, for all of your wonderful um, uh, work and insight. It's, uh, it's really been uh, just fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the attention. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Zach. Me, me as well.